They did. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. Two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles, and at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is the uh, 1991 Jonathan Demme... I'm I'm not going to call it a horror classic. It's not a horror movie. Jonathan Demme's 1991 wonderful thriller, uh, The Silence of the Lambs, which, uh, a movie that I have, oh boy, are, are we already going to have the horror discussion? No, you're right, it's a thriller, I just thought you were pausing whether to say film or not, and I was really confused, but yeah, no, it's a thriller, it's not a horror. <laughs> Alright, so, we agree on this to lead with, um, a movie I've seen several times, um, especially in the last ten years or so, um... This is not a subject that I can say I'm, like, a big fan of. There are definitely... Is it called the Lecterverse? Is that what people call it? They don't call it a Hannibalverse. They call it a Lecterverse? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Lecterverse, uh, which... What is... I think there's a new thing coming out that it... I forget if it focuses on Hannibal but can't use Clarice, or it's the other way, but, it, yeah, it's... It's weird. <laughs> Yeah, definitely the um, definitely the Sony slash Marvel Spider Man dispute of serial killers is Clarice TV shows that can't use Lecter and Hannibal TV shows that can't use Clarice. It's a it's a weird, sick world we've made for ourselves. Um, so to all this to say, I think the only other Hannibal Lecter property I've ever watched is Hannibal. Um, I've not gotten to the television programs. I've not gotten to other movies. Um, I know I've looked for the Michael Mann version of this, but I, I have never actually found it streaming. I was just going to say, I've heard very good things about the show that has a deep following. Um, so if you're interested in the Lecterverse, you can check that one out. And I have seen Red Dragon, if you need any info on that, but it's been like a decade. So I don't know how much of it is rattling up in my head, but I have seen other stuff in this um, extended universe. and. I think a lot of it in general hits kind of the same beats. So, like, if that's what you're into, it works. Um, I remember being reasonably entertained by Red Dragon. Or I think there's a slightly different title to that, but whatever it is. Um, 
And apparently the TV show is, like, very good from, you know, critics that I've read and heard of, so, or heard from, rather, so. Yeah, my understanding is that Hannibal the show is good. I'm a, I'm a very, very big Pushing Daisies fan, and apparently Hannibal is just Pushing Daisies with more blood, and... I mean, with a description like that, I don't know how I haven't watched all of it, except for the fact that I don't watch TV anymore. Um, so I guess I guess here's the thing about The Silence of the Lambs, in which I think my opinion on it is... It's a weird combination. It's significantly less scathing than Forrest Gump. Uh, but it is also, I think, a little bit more heretical. And I guess I guess the thing about this movie, which is an extremely well-reviewed one, and one that I think, with a very slight exception that we'll talk about, uh, is, is really only kind of getting better. So, spoiler alert, someday I am going to do, either because the, uh, either because the AFI gets their act together and puts out a new list, or because we have finally gotten to the end and it's one of the fun things we keep threatening to do, I have a... a draft of predicting the next hundred AFI movies like so whenever they do their next list I've got a prediction for that I am I am still workshopping it there are still things I'm doing but like it's in mind and and I think it is fair to say that Silence of the Lambs will not be 74 next time I'm predicting a really big jump um this is a movie that has again really uh, from from whatever from whatever perspective you want to look at it, I think is just getting more and more influential. So, like, let's let's take uh, just the the pure movie one. Uh, if you want to say that this is a key a key film in the early prestige horror days, in which to say movies that aren't actually scary but use uh, horror imagery or horror tropes or or social critique. Um, if you want to if you want to put it in there, you certainly can. And and I think both of us have real, real, uh, <laughs> what's the word I want to use here? We have real, uh, reticence to, to crown the prestige horror vibes. Um, and we've talked about Get Out before, um, but obviously the work of Ari Aster, who I think is a nincompoop, will not be showing up here. <laughs> but I think Silence is a much better movie than that. Um, a much better movie than those other prestige, uh, or, or elevated horror the most pretentious fake name uh, kind of genre. I, I'm just wondering if you're suggesting that I'm reticent about saying horror and thrillers can be good movies. I don't. What What was the reticence there? Oh, I assumed it was because we both don't much care for like the elevated horror genre or the trappings that go with it. Um, I have, I, I'm not going to get into all of it, but like, I think the witch is good and I think Ari Aster is bad. And I think the reasons the witch is good have very little to do with the horror stuff, but maybe I'm speaking for you when I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it fails more often than not, but I think horror and thrillers can be very powerful. Um, I think a lot of the classic horror movies, um, or thriller movies are actually quite good. Um. Or, or quite affecting anyway. Like I think it has a place, and I'm uh, a fan of that. But I, I think it does. It's hard to do. It's much harder to do than one would. One tends to assume of a genre film. Um, but I, I think it 
does fail a lot. Of Silence of the Lambs, I would say, I mean, you're right, it's not, like, jump scary. I think there's the distinction to be made here between, like, scary in that way and, like, creepy. Um, which is also the distinction kind of to be made between horror and thriller, where one is, like, physical, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is horror. Um, Silence of the Lamb is th- thriller because it's more of a mental um, instability uh, and more of a, a mental terror. Like Halloween really is a thriller um, because that's all about anticipation and fear and dread. And the like. The actual knife shots are deferred for most of it. Oh, I, I meant elevated horror like the thing film Twitter talks about. Like the, the oh, horror, I, I've, the I've horror not movies stumbled across that, I guess, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, when I say elevated horror, what I mean, or prestige horror, it's the stuff that's come out in the past ten years that's meant to be... Um, it's it's essentially a lot of horror movies without the, without the jump scares, so it's, it's like... And I say that, it, like, that's the only thing. But it's also meant to, like, talk about things and, like, put the metaphors facing forward in a much bigger way. So that's Ari Aster, that's your Midsommar, that's your... Um, your hereditary, that's the witch, that's it follows, uh, to some extent that's something like the Babadook or Mother. Um, so like those those kind of movies. And that is a genre that I kind of don't think very much of. Like that particular stylistic thing, with the exception of Get Out, not really a horror movie, and The Witch, a horror movie, but weird. Um The The Witch is a horror movie. It's also weird, but <laughs> it is a horror movie. Um or the Vivitch, if you want to read it as the poster sets it up. Um, okay, I got you. I thought you were picking newer stuff just as, like, topical reference points, but, okay, if this... Yeah, I hadn't actually stumbled across that as, like, the thing. Um, but, yeah, if you're talking, like, that sort of last ten years, we have something to say, horror movies, then, like, yeah, those absolutely fail more often than they don't. Yeah, that was... I was. I realized, as you were saying stuff about, like, older stuff, I'm like, wait a second... This is this is a film Twitter thing. This is not a this is not a broader conversation thing. Um, I was about to say, I'm like, no, there there's good stuff out there, and I like a lot of it. But yeah, no, I see what you're saying now. But that's you know, <laughs> when I start dropping emo Twitter in mine, that, I think that's the analog. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So like, I think I think the that that genre, as we would, or movement, maybe movement is a better way to put it. I think there's a lot of silence in the lambs in there where it's where it's uh, a statement about the world at large. Like I think you definitely can read a lot of women in the workplace, a lot of late second wave stuff into into Silence of the Lambs, and the movie is is absolutely open to that. Um, I think I think the way that it's shot is also a really important element to this too, because so much of your quote unquote elevated horror is is shot in a way that's ostentatious and I'm going to use that word on purpose because I do think you're meant to notice it um and I think the one of the things about about the silence of the lambs that is so interesting is the the aggressively subjective camera and I'm going to sort of mention in some of the replacement titles that the the subjective camera the way that we are put in the shoes of one of the characters at at many many times in that movie is interesting not because not because Demi's the first guy to get there or anything like that, because that certainly is a key part of other movies, let alone other horror movies, let alone other thrillers, let alone other movies about serial killers. But 
he he uh, he spams that move so often that it becomes a brand new way of watching, and that's a very exciting thing in the movie. Uh, and some of those moments are, are more effective than others, um, but I think that particular that particular style and that particular approach and that mindfulness about the world and and trying to make a point about something political is is sort of a precursor. Aside from the uh, the whole like elevated horror thing, um, this is a movie which which did win Best Picture for 1991. It is one of three movies to to win those big five awards. So that's picture, director, actor, actress, and then whichever screenplay it was. Um, and I, I do rate this higher than the two movies that actually did it uh, before this, which which are uh, It Happened One Night, Good, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I think is profoundly overrated. Which is, But this is like, I think this is a, a good movie in a lot of ways. I think I think what I'm missing from this movie is a sense, I, I just think the lyricism kind of impinges on the weight of the movie. I think it's a little, it's a little Baroque in a lot of the things it does, um, which I find sort of distracting in its own way. Like in, in some ways, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the difference is between this and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Like, I think this is a better written movie, but a lot of the same kind of stuff that's too cute, um, sort of an anagram thing, a little bit too easy to find clues for stuff, the neat interlocking connection of all this stuff that that happens in there. I don't know. I just I'm I just have a hard time with how much of this movie just feels very, very simple in a lot of ways, and the style of it is so strong. And I think people really get wrapped up in the Anthony Hopkins of this too. And this is another heretical opinion, but like he, this is maybe his third best performance of this three-year period from 91 to 93 because he's better in Howard's End than he is in this. And then when he's in Remains of the Day, that's like a top 100 of all time performance. That's like perfect. You you don't get a better performance than that. So like maybe it's just maybe it's just that I'm, I'm the wrong kind of person for this. I'm not a serial killer guy. I'm more of a merchant and ivory guy, which I don't know. Perhaps that says something bad about me. But there are... There are just a lot of things about about this movie which I just kind of can't get on board with. I'm not swept up in it, and I feel like that that's the difference between people who are like, what are you talking about? This is an obvious top 100 or even top 50 American movie of all time. And people like me who would have this in the same area as all the President's Men. Like, a very, very rigorously made movie. Very impressively done movie. One that I can't quite get to, somehow. So you're saying you agree with AFI because this and all the President's Men are three away from each other? Uh, it's it's kind of a funny pairing, honestly. Like, I, I think they kind of belong in the same zone. And I think that zone is anywhere from 75 to 100 places back from where it is. <laughs> like, Which I realize is, is an incredibly unpopular opinion because you will remember... Um, back when I was doing that, that, uh, American movies list, I put out a poll for that and we talked about that. That was the poll with seven Spielberg movies, which I'm saying for the benefit of our audience. So they'll know how mad I was. And this movie, um, came in ninth 
out of all of my respondents. It got it got votes from two thirds of everyone who who voted, and it was the ninth ranked movie. And then the the year after, I did I did a similar poll for best picture winners, and this finished third. And the only movies ahead of it were The Godfather and Casablanca. So, like, just sort of popularly speaking, I think I think this movie is due for a big bump whenever the AFI does this again. And I think that it's hard not to uh, it's hard not to note its its presence and influence um, on the rest of the genre. It's it's like single handedly moving some of the focus in American crime movies. Because if you watch your your American crime movies from before this, like you have your gangster pictures in the 30s, 40s and 50s are your PIs usually doing some kind of organized crime thing, um, Maltese Falcon out of the past, that kind of that kind of work. Um, 60s and 70s, you have all these cop dramas, but you also have like The Godfather and it's sort of a, an ode to an organized crime movie of the past. And then you get to 1991 and it's about this very personalized kind of crime very personalized kind of evil um not again we're going to talk about two serial killer movies that actually predate this one but this is a this is a movie which i think it doesn't single-handedly create a um by kidding it doesn't single-handedly create a new genre all on its own but it's not it's not like it's uh it's working off stuff where there is a lot of precedent for it either I think it now, in retrospect, probably benefits in some way from the obsession with serial killer stories, narratives, culture in particular. Not culture and the like people want to be a serial killer, but like all the podcasts and shows and, and movies out there that are mining this material. Um, like that's just incredibly popular right now. So I think... It, its legacy probably benefits from that in some way, but it also has a hand in really setting that up and kicking that off, I should think. Um, I think, you know, in your discussion there, what makes it exciting for people and also what kind of turns you off in a particular way is that, right, this is a movie that seems to lend some legitimacy to the type of movie that it is and that it does win the big five, and that it's even nominated for Best Picture. Um, there are a lot of great horror and thriller films before this, but they're not nominated, or they're not winning in the same way. Um, so in a way, this this really does... I don't like that I'm saying it like this, but it, it, to put it sort of reductively, it does legitimize the stuff that comes after it in a very particular way. Um, I don't hold that against the film. Like... I don't, I don't think it, it swoops in with, like, this is my intention. Um, but I think, you know, on the one hand, you look back at it, then and it's highly influential. And it was a really popular movie. It still is. Like, it, that's nothing to sneeze at. I think that's part of why it holds up so well, is that it entertains people. Um, but it's also kind of this real threshold moment, it seems like. Um, and for some people, that makes it more important. Um, and for, you know, someone like you, that's, that makes you bristle a little bit. I tend to be in that camp. I'd say with this movie, I don't know. I don't think it's one of the hundred best. I doubt it, but I also don't have a clear sense of where I would even put it. Like I watch it. I'm in, I like it. I'm entertained. I think it's a well-made movie. I think it's good. Um, I don't think it's spectacular. Um, 
so it's one of those that like I've seen it. I'd watch it again. Like I think it's doing some cool stuff. <clears throat> um, but it, to me, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have a top fifty if that's where it's going to jump to in the next one. So the thing you just said about the um, about comparing it to other horror movies, I think that's the light bulb moment I had watching this. It was around the time I was we got to the part where we just made popcorn and then Anthony Hopkins rips a guy's face off. So I guess we timed that properly. Um, it's a it's a moment in the movie where I'm like, people who talk about this with so much reverence are not really like I don't think they're thinking about this in terms of like it's a top 50 or top 100 movie compared to it's a wonderful life. They're saying it's a top hundred or a top 50 movie compared to, I don't know, Halloween two, you know, like they are, they are putting it in the context of the genre first and foremost. And I think that's sort of like you were saying earlier, I think that's mostly unfair to the genre. Like, I think more or less that is, that is unfair to, um, unfair to crime movies, unfair to horror movies, unfair to thrillers. And and I kind of want people to, I don't know, maybe sidle up a little bit more to the movie and maybe a little bit less to the to the to the genre it's in. So I guess that's one way of saying we've spent a lot of time talking about where it's been. Um but go ahead, last last thought and then we'll talk about the the picture. So apparently I'm long-winded today, but I have good timing because the cat just jumped across the computer. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, it's completely unfair to the genre, which, you know, as I've said, I look, I am not a scholar of by any means. There's a lot I haven't been seeing. I'm not the type who's digging into a bunch of, like, C and D-list horror movies. Like, I don't have that level of familiarity, but it is a genre that, like, I think can do a lot. And then I think tends to get a worse rap than it might deserve. Um, so I think it's completely unfair to the genre, but I also do think it's unfair to the silence of the lambs in a certain way. Um, that right, everyone wants to make a good movie and they want to be recognized for that and they want to be successful. But I, I just don't think this is a movie that set out and was like, this is going to be a real, uh, you know, cultural shift in. American movies, um, right? It's after this that, I mean, cop dramas are a thing, obviously, but like procedurals start to get big after this too. So there's the, like a certain fascination with the <clears throat> content of The Silence of the Lambs that gets really popular and <clears throat> kind of, unfortunately, in a way, I think it's set up to be like just totally jabbed at now in a way that's somewhat unfair because we're not engaging with the movie itself, as you were saying. All right, so the movie itself, uh, one that I, I really don't know that we need to spend a lot of time summarizing, but because the, the theme this week is Ladies Love Serial Killers, um, a theme that I changed the name to from just Killers this morning, um, this is a movie in which a, a young trainee at the FBI uh, named Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, for which she, she got her second Oscar in... How many calendar years? Three? I think three calendar years. She was big. Foster plays a um, this FBI trainee who is sent in to work on a serial killer who's been in jail for eight years, a guy named Hannibal Lecter, whose name fortuitously rhymes with cannibal, which is what he does. Uh, so that's, that's what he is famous for, and that's what his deal was. And she's sent in to talk to him as Hannibal figures out really quickly... Because 
she's young and pretty. And, and of course, all of these other people he's surrounded by are male and not really his type. And everybody makes a point of saying that, that she would be his type, and everybody makes a point of asking her out. It seems like everybody at the FBI is trying to, um, to ask her out on a date or show her, show her a good time, as the phrase goes. Um, in any event, she is wrapped up in, in the hunt for a serial killer named Buffalo Bill, um, real name Jane Gum, played by Ted Levine in a, a performance we can talk about. But that particular um, serial killer is someone who, like, skins women, and eventually uh, Jodie Foster's character Clarice figures out that he is trying to make a new skin for himself out of the skin of, of women. So she is the only one who is able to, like, really get through to Hannibal Lecter, who is playing a game with her, because he's figured out who the, the serial killer is, and he's, like, stringing her along, giving her clues, while at the same time, you know, sort of thinking about her life and trying to figure her out. Um, and that is sort of the cat and mouse and also another cat, because there is a serial killer um, going around. And, and murdering slash skinning slash flaying women uh, to make his own suit out of them. That's the, the basic premise, and the relationship between the two of them is why you watch the movie, I think. Like, this is a movie which is extremely talky. Um, it's a movie in which the most memorable pieces of it are probably a pair of conversations done mostly in close-ups in which you very rarely see the two of them in the same shot together, if at all. Um, one of them, Clarice is talking to Hannibal in his, like, dungeon cell, basically. <laughs> He's, like, in a dungeon at the bottom of this ancient building in Baltimore behind glass. And, uh, and in the other, he's behind bars in this, in this room... Uh, in Memphis, and and that's like the heart of the movie, and how she learns to work through Hannibal's mind, and how she develops this unusual, wary, but also somewhat respectful relationship is at the center of of the film itself. So there are there are other movies in which the serial killer and their ladies have like a closer relationship, but this one between um between an angel and a devil essentially definitely catches the attention and, and definitely uh makes you take notice is there is there anything about their relationship that stands out to you that i have not already said no <clears throat> i think you got the big stuff um i mean it, it like i do think it's a genuinely entertaining cat and mouse game through the movie like um not the greatest thing ever, but it is just kind of like it is fun to watch them interact. Like those are good scenes, and those are the ones that stand up to the point that we forget that Anthony Hopkins isn't in this all that much. But the, like those are the big moments, and it, they're well written. Like I think their relationship is it's entertaining, if nothing else. I think the the scene where she tells him about the title of the movie is actually, like, one of the better scenes of the 90s, uh, to be perfectly honest. Like, there's... I know that I, like, came into this one kind of cool, but I think this is a genuinely very good, very well-made movie, and the reason I'm always 
a little bit more impressed with Foster's performance than Hopkins is one, it's a lot easier to play Hannibal Lecter than it is to play Clarice Starling, uh, because all of the meaty stuff um, that you can really sink your teeth into is Hannibal Lecter related. And and I, is that the second cannibalism joke I've made in two episodes? I'm pretty sure it is. I don't quite remember what the last one was, but that was a good pun, even if it was unintentional. I said a thing about about the Donner Party party being one of the tastier morsels of American frontier history. I think. I, yeah, I think you did. <laughs> Which, yes, in many ways. There's even a board game about that one now. Um, I mean, yeah, Hopkins can just vamp the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what you can do when you're Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, so while while he's vamping, she has to she has to play off this very serious, um, very, very wholesome kind of character. Um, where he in that first scene where they meet each other and he he calls her a rube. It's it's hard to play a rube, but she like does a really good job of doing that. Um even though it's kind of funny, when when I was watching this the other night with my wife, she was saying that that Jodie Foster appears to have just copied Holly Hunter's voice and cadence from like broadcast news for a lot of this, and I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but that's like that's essentially what she has to play, and her having to like sell the scene very seriously, where she explains what it is that motivates her, what has gotten her into law enforcement is this idea that she is trying to just save someone. Um, not that there, it's about right and wrong, not that it's about um, seeing justice done in some kind of incredibly uh, idealistic way, but that it's about like picking up and running off with as many people she can save as possible. And, and that scene, I think, is a genuinely pretty moving one. Even, how many times have I seen this movie? Even five or six times in? Like, that's, that's still a pretty potent moment. Um, and I think it only, it only works because this is a lady who is letting it all out for the serial killer, who is really sort of, uh, revealing herself in a serious way to someone who she understands is, is extraordinarily dangerous. So the theme this week, uh, and again, if you need more Silence of the Lambs content, I, I direct you to the internet, um, but the theme this week, or ooh, or I direct you to Matt. Well, no, not totally. Um, I I just wanted to talk about the Buffalo Bill performance briefly and just say that it is very well done, creep. <laughs> yeah. Um. As far as another film Twitter thing that goes around, it's as the movie has just turned thirty at the time that we are um that we are chatting about this. Uh, it's sort of been back in the news again and. The movie is sort of famous for having this this trans villain, basically, and like it it is it is worth talking about. And I think what I want to do is just default to Emily Vanderwerf, who is one of my one of my favorite trans movie and TV critics, and she had a thread a couple weeks ago that you can find pretty easily. It, it got a lot of it got a lot of play. Um, but she's basically saying the movie itself s- tries to talk about Buffalo Bill as not a transsexual character because they say that in the movie a few times and they try not to like demonize those people. But the impact of the movie is still pretty transphobic because of that one scene that you already know which one I mean. Um, 
Like there's there's a difference between what a movie tries to do and then of course what a movie actually does. And I think her her take on that is is very very well done and very very well reasoned. So that's that's what I've got for that particular thing. And and what is a what is a genuinely good slash harrowing performance from Ted Levine in a in a role that I think he has to differentiate himself from Hopkins, right? Because there are two serial killers in one movie. So you've got one who's basically playing Jeeves and another one who is meant to be every bit the rube that uh that Clarice is. So he has to he has to find a middle ground in multiple ways and, and that's that's impressive to watch. Yeah, I uh, that's my thought too, and I think right, leading them to Emily Vanderwerf is a good good thing. Um But yeah, like Right, Hopkins is doing a Moriarty thing, like he's smarter than everyone, and I think it's just such a good performance that Buffalo Bill character becomes so, like, viscerally creepy. Um, That always stands out to me as, that's really good in the movie. Um, But yeah, it's also deeply problematic, because, right, this is, there's a whole big scene of the, of... Buffalo Bill, uh, basically enacting a transgender identity. Um, it's not just that, you know, he's, he's into skin. Um, but it's like, it's tying that to mental illness in some way. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot wrong there, but it is a very good performance. That was really all I wanted to say. All right, so ladies who love serial killers, sometimes we love them like Hannibal Lecter. Sometimes we do not love them quite so much like like Jane Gum. Um, the two movies I've got for us are both by uh, other classic American film directors. Uh, the first one is Shadow of a Doubt, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1943 movie starring Joseph Cotton and uh, personal favorite Teresa Wright. And then the... Other one is Terrence Malick's debut feature, uh, Badlands, which is from 1973 and has Martin Sheen and another personal favorite, uh, Sissy Spacex. So those those two movies are the ones I'm going with here. Shadow of a Doubt is really interesting because in 1943, there are just not that many serial killer movies out there. Like the, I think the only other ones I can think of immediately are also Hitchcock. Like, I'm thinking about The Lodger, his, um, his 1927 British movie, which is this wonderful, silent movie, which is really twisty and really gorgeous and, and a very, very interesting picture. Um, but Shadow of a Doubt is, is interesting for several reasons. The first one I'm going to bring up is that it is a Thornton Wilder joint to some extent. So after he was um, famous around this time for Our Town, naturally. And you watch this movie, which is set in this this sort of small California town um, where Teresa Wright and her family live. And she plays a, like a high school student. Um, but she is living there with her very normal, very white bread, very middle class family. And the town is small, but not like, you know, hick town. It's like, it's the kind of perfect size where everyone knows everyone else's name. Like, the librarian knows her name. The traffic cop knows her name. And the appearance of anyone new in town 
triggers a response of some kind. Like, it's that perfect size of small. And speaking as someone who actually likes Our Town pretty well, both the play and the 1940 film version, I find that really welcome. Um, and it, it does a lot to amplify what Joseph Cotton is doing in this in this role. So Joseph Cotton plays a character... Are you ready for this, by the way? This is one of my favorite things when people have famous people names from later on. His character's name is Charles Oakley. No, I wasn't ready for that, but here we are. Uh, I, I, what if every NBA player was named after a Hitchcock movie? <laughs> There's... I have to compile a list one of these days, but I just, I absolutely love that he does go by Charlie for most of the movie, and I can't imagine calling Charles Oakley Charlie more than once without dying. But, like, that's kind of, that that is a, a fun thing that happens. So, so Charlie Oakley is, is a, uh, he seems wealthy. He certainly gives off the, the impression of, of being wealthy. Um, and he is on the run, there are two cops who are chasing him around in Philadelphia, and he gets the idea to shoot a telegram to his sister uh, that he's going to come stay with them in California. And while this is happening, his his niece, uh, played by Teresa Wright, also named Charlie, short for Charlotte, but named after him, um, gets the idea. You know, I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of stuck. I think the family's a little stuck. I think what I'd like to do is send a send a telegram to my Uncle Charlie and see and see if he wouldn't like to come to visit. So there's this very interesting thing that happens from the beginning where the two of them are set up as being linked and like almost like a telepathic kind of link. And there's a funny little joke at the telegraph office where she where she says to the person doing the telegraphs, like, do you think that it's possible to to have telepathy? And the person says, that's my business, just not telegraphy which is a very solid 1943 joke. Um, but the two of them are really simpatico in a way that's that's interesting, even though they don't interact in any serious way before this. Like, it's it's been a long time since they've seen each other. Um, but the two of them have a connection. There's a, there's a link between the two of them that the movie returns to over and over again, which, first of all, interesting... Second of all, that link is portrayed early on because we watch both of them in their initial scenes lying in bed, um, and we get it from different angles mostly, like the angle that Hitchcock is shooting Cotton at is different from the one he's shooting right at, but the thing that I think is so interesting about it is that we're going to keep watching her be ambulatory and move around a whole bunch, and we're going to keep getting images of him being in bed late and not really enjoying daylight so much. And there is a very, very strong implication that this is like a vampire movie in a certain way, um, because you keep getting this imagery and you keep hearing about how he's not not going out in the light very often. Um, most of his scenes <laughs> take place in in electric light or at nighttime. There are a couple out in the day, but there are not many. Um, and I think someone actually says the word vampire around him once. Like it's a very, very clever little moment. This is this is a well-written movie to say the least. The thing about the thing about um Uncle Charlie is that he's a he is a serial killer. Uh he is what's known in the papers as the Merry Widow Murderer uh because what he does is he he strangles. He is a a, a strangler. He is a strangler who murders rich old women 
essentially. Uh, just chokes him to death. You said all of that. It's like, well, the thing about Uncle Charlie is he's a bit racist. <laughs> he just strangles old women. You know, it's one of those nasty habits that uncles are prone to have. <laughs> he's a very charming fellow, but he, he will find these rich old women and kill them. And the movie sort of sets this back in a way that I find, um, and by sets this back, I mean not like puts it back in time, but like explains it a little bit. What I find what I find interesting about it is that Charlie's personality used to be one way, and then he was in a really bad accident as a kid, and then he turned into a different person, which is kind of interesting. Like, I think that's a that's an easier way to describe the pathology, or at least explain where it comes from, as opposed to like, you know, having to talk about where serial killers and sociopaths come from. But he is trying to hide from his family that he is, you know, on the run because he's a serial killer, but it doesn't take, it doesn't take, um, Charlie, the younger one, uh, all that long to sort of figure out that something's wrong. Um, she Charlie knows, the non-strangler. <laughs> yes, we could say girl, we could say girl Charlie, we could say non-strangling Charlie, uh, we could say, we could say all number of things, but Charlie the girl, um, figures out that he has been giving her jewelry that used to belong to other people. It's got an inscription in it that, you know, was not her name or his name, frankly. Uh, she notices that he tries to hide the newspaper, specifically a page on which that Mary Widow murderer was, uh, was being discussed. And she is sort of becoming more and more leery of him up to a certain point and then after he tries to kill her a couple times, um, she figures it out earlier than that, but like after he tries to kill her a couple times uh, to make it look like some kind of household accident, that's when that's when things start to, to really come to a head. The movie, as far as a ladies who love serial killers thing go, um, I think the reason this one really stands out to me is twofold. One... Ladies love Uncle Charlie. Uncle Charlie is beloved. Uh, he he absolutely rules his sister. It is an incredibly sophisticated performance um, from the woman playing playing his sister uh, Emma, played by Patricia Collinge, who is who is um just so so wrapped up in him. He's like the baby of the family apparently, and she's she's older. She's definitely very middle aged. And he's supposed to come off as like a, you know, late 20s, early 30s kind of guy. And she is so focused and so reliant on his energy and his charm and his youthfulness. Um, there's this incredibly funny scene where he goes to the bank. He's um, setting up a bank account there with, with his brother-in-law, played by Henry Travers. And he's going there and he's like, making jokes at the window about him embezzling money and like not nice but like incredibly funny because Henry Travers is just like making this like Mr. Potato Head sad face because he looks like a potato and he looks sad and like there's this, this very good moment where you can like tell this is why people like him you know he just he's just got jokes um he finds a way to be wry and to sort of poke people in the ribs and sort of um you know, not necessarily cruel ways, but in ways that, you know, just sort of, like, get under their skin a little bit. And then there's a moment not much later where the, the president of the bank's wife comes in and she's, like, 
talking him up, and then the president of the bank like is like Margaret, which is a very forties moment. But he just he just has a way with the ladies, who just like the way he makes them feel and like the kind of charm he possesses. And then the other reason, of course, is because Charlie and Charlie have this very close relationship that you you read as incestuous. Not that they're actually going out and boinking. Um, not because she's too young, by the way. Because at the end of this movie, she totally ends up with a police inspector. And you're just like, I don't know how old everyone is in this movie, but it is not comfortable. Anyway, anyway, different times. But she is... She, the two of them are are so close and and so giggly and so uh, near to one to one another that you are I think you are absolutely meant to read kind of this like incesty vibe incesty flavor into the movie which let it let it be known that's not that's not something that your average 40s movie calls your attention to I think I'll put it that way that's it's a it's a very risque moment um, the jewelry I referred to is a, is an emerald ring, and he's giving, he being Uncle Charlie, it's one of his first nights in California, he's giving everyone presents, and the presents sort of vary in seriousness, but he eventually, um, he eventually gives Charlie hers, not at the dinner table with everyone else, but he takes her off into a different room and tells her how special she is to him, and he puts her ring on her finger, and it's this uncomfortable, intimate moment uh, that she thrills to, that she she absolutely adores, like, having this kind of attention. Um, and it's, it's again, it's a very uncomfortable moment, but the, the ladies love serial killers moment is very, very strong um, in, in that particular place. I have one other thing to say that's kind of incidental to this, um, but is there is there anything you want to clarify or or mention in reference to Shadow of the Doubt? Three quick thoughts, I guess. One, the serial killer is so often charming or debonair. Um, seems to be alive and well in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where that starts in particular, but it, it's a really interesting conceit. Um, although even Hannibal, in a certain way, is charming. Um, or at least captivating like there's something about this mentality that in fiction anyway tends to lend the certain uh charisma um to i hope that he strangles old women becomes a bit like (laughs) he rode a tractor from iowa to wisconsin was a Mm. bit back in the day and three, you mentioned two of the movies from the journalism episode, and I'm waiting for mention of the third. Well, we'll see if I can sneak that one in there. Um, the The other thing that I wanted to mention is that there is this sort of like ongoing dialogue in the movie, which I think is very online in a weird way. Um, so, so Charlie's dad, um, Joe, and and his friend from like next door, Herbie. The two of them spend a lot of time planning out the perfect crime with each other. Like, they spend a lot of time telling each other how they would kill one another if they wanted to get away with it. And it's it's the most, like, Reddit kind of discussion I think I can imagine. And the two of them are just very offhand about it. It's like, you know, if I wanted to kill you, put some mushrooms in your food. And the worst I would get is manslaughter. No, I've got it. You put someone in the bathtub and just hold their legs up. And, like, the two of them, like... 
are actively discussing at the dinner table or on the porch, like, how to murder each other. And it's this incredibly funny thing, which is also not funny at all. And there's a moment where Charlie's like, you have to stop doing this. No, like, it's funny, but it, it shouldn't be funny at all. It's one of those things. I, like, yeah, it is something you would find on Reddit, but I don't think it is, like, a specifically online thing. I refuse to believe that with two brothers you didn't have, maybe not murder discussions, but weird stuff like that happening. Like, I know I did in, in childhood where it's, like, you just, you come up with these, like, total imaginative situations where it's, like, how much could I get away with if we did X? Like, I think that still happens, but now it just does end up on Reddit, so. Something about it, just, like, the cadence of it just feels like a series of, like, Reddit or Tumblr posts to me somehow. I, I don't know that, like, the idea is definitely, like, older than, than the internet. It's just something about the the very, like, winky way they talk about it, which is also, like, it's it's even less winky, I guess, than so, than so like, straight-faced that it becomes ironic again. It's, it's very interesting, and of course, um, we all know Henry Travers best from playing Clarence in, in It's a Wonderful Life, so it's just extra levels of funny, though, to watch that go down. So that is, that is the Shadow of a Doubt, uh, the 43 Hitchcock movie, and we're going to jump ahead 30 years to Terrence Malick's Badlands, and Badlands is, like I said, the first Malick movie, um... There's a there's a really wonderful case to be made that no one has had a better stretch of his first five movies than Terrence Malick has, though he is also one of the only people I can think of whose first five movies stretch almost 40 years because he spent a lot of time just not making stuff. Um, but this is this is his first one. It is very, very loosely based on Charles Starkweather. Um, who you may know from from We Didn't Start the Fire. Uh, just, to, just to contextualize a little bit, Starkweather, Homicide, Children of Thalidomide. Oh, oh, oh. Like, that's, that's where it is in the song. I just offered We Didn't Start the Fire as contextualization. Like, that song isn't an attempt to contextualize a <laughs> hundred freaking years. <laughs> I also, I also just want to show you very quickly that I'm pretty sure that my Dessel topic this time out is going to be movies based on Whedon Start the Fire events, but not movies from Whedon Start the Fire. I've got a very, I've got a very specific thing in mind here. Um, I was really hoping your Dessel would be about Terrence Malick's hat. Which, which, which one? Would, or hats, rather. <laughs> I'm thinking of his big, like, jug pseudo-cowboy hat thing. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. No, I, I do know what you what you mean, yes. And he does he does show up as, a, not as himself, he shows up as, like, an architect in this movie or something. Um, and he does have a, a silly hat in here, too. So one, one could rank the Malik hats if one so chose. Um, in any event, <laughs> this is, it's, um, it's set in, like, small town South Dakota, small town... Uh, Montana, set in like a very particular region of the country uh, that we don't usually name when we photograph it. I feel like most of the westerns that are shot in that particular like upper northern big sky Midwest are like not usually said to be there. Um, but this one sort of recognizes its places in a way that's that's interesting to me. 
The film is set in the, the late 50s, sort of like the Charles Stark rather homicide stuff. Um, and in this movie, the serial killer is Martin Sheen, um, playing a character named Kit. And Kit is, is, as he refers to it, throwing garbage, which is what we should call all the people who take care of our sanitation, is garbage throwers, because that sounds incredibly fun. And the he um he runs into Holly, played by Sissy Spacek at one point, and the two of them kind of hit it off. Another relationship. And this is kind of why I went for the ladies love a serial killer, but as I was watching this, I was just like, Clarice is young enough to be Hannibal Lecter's daughter. Uh Charlie is young enough to be Charlie's daughter. And the closest age difference between these people is probably between Kit and Holly. He's like 25 and she's 15. Naturally, they fall in love. Um, and this is this is the most literal version of Ladies Love a Serial Killer. The first person who Kit murders is her dad. So her father disapproves of Kit, disapproves, I mean, for several reasons. I mean, he, he has no prospects and he's 10 years older than his high school-age daughter. Um, but... He he is, like, actively saying he's going to, like, get the law on him and all this stuff, and then Kit shoots him. And what happens after that is that Holly kind of decides, she sort of says this to herself in, in voiceover, one of, the, one of the rare versions of a voiceover that I don't hate. I think the voiceover in this is wonderful. Um, but she sort of thinks to herself... I realized at this point that, for better or worse, my, my destiny was with Kit. Um, and that he loved me, and that he loved me for who I was, and that that was better for some short amount of time um, than, than it might have been to have had her father, who was not a great guy, like, not bad enough to get executed in his own home, but not, a, not the world's, like, most wonderful man. And she sort of makes the decision that this is what she wants more and she's willing to to go along with the guy who shot her dad down in their parlor um and from there kit kills people who come looking for them it is mostly like those kind of people uh who he kills he's not like one of the and in this way it's not like a self-defense thing like it's a self-defense in the sense that he like doesn't want to go to prison but it's also not like he seeks people out to go murder, um, which again, I'm sure must feel like a very, a very strange distinction to draw when we're talking about murdering people, but that's what, that's what's going on <laughs> in this movie. Uh, a character who is not like, uh, Hannibal Lecter, who's doing it for some pathological reason, uh, same goes for Buffalo Bill, and it's not a character like, um, like Charlie Oakley, who is murdering people in order to take their jewelry or their furs or, or their money or what have you. The the reason that Kit is killing people is because he's like searching for meaning. And it's a it's a very unusual motivation, but and it's not something that anyone ever says. But it, you can sort of tell in Sheen's performance and in the dialogue in this movie that he is looking for ways to make things make sense. Um, again, someone who is throwing trash and then ends up working at a feedlot, just sort of an aimless job as a, as a quote unquote cowboy, whatever that means in 1958. Um, he is, 
he is constantly looking for trophies. Um, some of them are literal trophies, as in a trophy he steals from someone at some point. But he's looking for ways to like make moments mean something. And an example of that, he's out on the... This is before he kills anyone. But he's out walking with, with Holly, and Kit picks up this giant rock. And is like, we should smash our hands so we can remember this day. And Holly's like, I don't want to do that. That'll hurt. And he says, that's the point, stupid. And he says, anyway, I'll keep it for a souvenir. Takes another few steps, says, maybe I'll find one that's a little lighter. Tosses that rock and picks up a different rock. Um, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very wry little moment. But you just sort of watch him over and over again take things in the hopes that it'll like signify a memory or he'll he'll sort of pause and say I want this to mean this like at one point they are the two of them go into this rich man's house and basically like hang out for a while uh, while the rich guy and his maid are there and they're just like sitting there like stealing groceries and playing dress up and, and stuff like that and he picks up a little bell and he rings the bell and says uh, the next time I do this, then this means we need to leave. He, they, they leave without him ever touching the bell again. He just wants to have a meaning attached to something. So the reason why he keeps killing people, in large part, is to not get caught. And he, he keeps doing this to people when it looks like he's in trouble. But he is also... The reason he seems to be into, like, killing people at all is to, like find a way to make himself more important. He likes it when people says, say he looks like James Dean. Um, he likes the idea that everyone's after him, you know, and, and Martin Sheen, to his credit, does look kind of like James Dean. Um, but that's, that's sort of where his mind is, and that's sort of where he's going. And the movie itself is, is definitely a kind of road movie. Um, it's currently on Criterion under their Lovers on the Run curation, which is appropriate. Um, Beautiful, beautiful shots of South Dakota, beautiful shots of fire consuming a house. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful things to recommend this movie. But that's like the starting point. Before I get to the the ladies' love aspect of this, anything... Is this one you've seen? I feel like this is more, a more likely one, but maybe not. No, I haven't. Um, Terrence Malick is someone I should spend more time with in general. Like... It's one of those I, I know, not a ton, but like a good bit about. Like I'm familiar with the movies, especially that first 30, 40 years, whatever it is. Um, but I, I like I sh one I should spend more time watching or like rewatching stuff. Um, I, I have been looking on the spreadsheet, and I'm t delighted that you have put those first five in order, <laughs> in chronological order of appearance, and that. You didn't even mean to do that, did you? Know? <laughs> uh, and that four of them are including this one within seven episodes. <laughs> so we have a lot of Terrence Malick coming up. Um, though, before having seen all of them, I have great fondness for the Tree of Life, and that one is much later. But um, so all of that to say, no, I haven't seen this one. But um, yeah, I, I guess I'll just end it there. I haven't seen it. <laughs> Well, this one, um, it's that. I mean, I was I was going to mention that there are a huge number of Malick movies coming up. So if you are like me and you're like, 
the cinema is about images, you know, and, and you're you're a Malik person, then hopefully you'll enjoy the next stretch of episodes because I have accidentally put all of them in there and in order, which I really did not realize I was doing. Um, but Badlands is definitely the most accessible. Um, it's the one that is kind of... It's kind of the most plot-centric, even though a lot of this is very, um, very much made out of vignettes and short little sequences. After the first, like, 30 minutes, it, like, you could put half of this in any order and it really wouldn't matter. Um, but that's, that's sort of the, the scope of the movie. One of the things that we talked about earlier with Silence of the Lambs is this very subjective camera work. And in a way, I actually think Badlands is kind of the least kind of the least reliant on that. And that's because Malik, of course, is the one who's the least interested in people. Um, Jonathan Demme, fascinated by people. Alfred Hitchcock, very interested in what's wrong with people, for the most part. Um, and there is a there's a wonderful perspective shot in that movie um, where Charlie the Elder, uh, man Charlie, as it were, uh, is, is walking towards the camera. He's in, uh, the camera is in, girl Charlie's position and we're watching him sort of storm closer and closer and it's a very scary little moment um that stands out but but there are more more perspective shots in that movie this one kind of restricts its perspective shots um that subjective perspective to when they're in the front seat of the car together so when he's driving she's sitting there and there is a pair of them that I want to like highlight here um the first one is taking place right after they've left the high school. He tells her to go get it, get her books so she can, like, stay in shape for school so when she comes back occasionally, like, they, they'll be ready to have her. It's the kind of thing that keeps happening where, like, he doesn't realize that consequences are coming. Like, he'll keep saying things like, later on, um, you'll have guys who want to date you and they'll say this, or, like... <laughs> Um, later on, you're going to have to go back to school, you know, and, and, you know, continue on with your studies. You may as well get your textbooks. And she's looking at him. And by she, I mean us too. And you can sort of see what she sees in him. You can see the, the youthful, but still slightly rugged handsomeness of a young Martin Sheen, the way that his hair is sort of like towering towards the sky. Um, he's got this denim jacket he always wears. And, and it's this deep blue denim, and it's sort of setting off the tan in his face. And you can just sort of, like, you can tell what it is she likes about him. Aside from the fact that he's older. Aside from the fact that he, like, treats her like she's someone worth talking to. Um, you just sort of get the sense of the older person giving her some kind of excitement. Um, even if that excitement in involves killing her dad. And then later on... Um, you get that same perspective shot again. It's a different car at this point, but it's the front seat. And she looks at him, and you can sort of see how, and this is after they've been on a spree, after Kit has killed any number of people. Um, but you can sort of see how harried he looks, and how tired, and how frustrated, and how vexed, and how easily he gets, like, annoyed. Because the two of them do start getting more and more annoyed with each other as the movie goes on. But that's, like very much the same kind of subjective perspective again, where you get to watch as she sees the worst in him and, and not just the worst in terms of watching him shoot people, which is the worst, but what she's seen before she's seen him worn down. She's seen him when he's less devil may care. She's seen him when he's more easily hurt. And we get to watch that from that sort of close up perspective as well. 
The other thing about the the ladies love a serial killer business for this movie um, is that the two of them are sort of play acting in a lot of ways, this sort of married life. There are multiple scenes where she's got curlers in her hair, like this 15, 16 year old girl. And of course it's Sissy SpaceX, so she looks younger. Um, but she's like got these curlers in her hair and she's like trying to like be the wife or be the mom and like you can sort of imagine her being on a farm in South Dakota and and looking much the same way and getting up to go cut off the head from a chicken um there's this I mean this the first time we see it she's got like the the kerchief tied around her head and she's like complaining about something and she just picks up the hatchet and she's like gonna go get the chicken and it's this very very funny like domestic moment of a certain kind which I just I just love, and then we we do see her with the curlers later on, when she's kind of lamenting that she she doesn't have a home, that she doesn't have a place to live, that they are sort of filthy and gross because they don't bathe as often as they should. Um, you see that. You also get to watch her like trying to be an adult in more ways than one. Like the first time we see her, she's like twirling a baton in a way that's very middle high school, like definitely reads as a younger person thing. And then once she's off with Kit in the woods, which is their first stop together, um, she starts playing around with like makeup and she like does the worst eyeliner job on herself that I think I've ever seen someone do who is above the age of four. Um, but she's like fooling around with that kind of thing um, and, and just trying to like play house in a house which is all outdoors in which her, her man has booby trapped in case certain people come by to, to try to catch them. Um, so this is the only one, I think, that has an explicit romantic angle to it. Um, out of the three, obviously Clarice does not have a thing for, for Hannibal Lecter or for Buffalo Bill. Um, and as much as I think Charlie has a thing for Charlie, it is not the kind of thing the censors would have let them get away with in 1943, so we're left in 1973. Uh, where, where we do get to have a sort of romantic connection between our, our serial killer and the girl. Anything else about any of these three? Or you are you are you spiel-ready? Uh, I think I'm spiel-ready. I'll save one thing I'm thinking that's actually serious for after that. Um, I think I know what I'm doing here, but I could be swayed, so the spiel will, will matter. Um the other thing I was going to ask, this is the less serious thing, what's funnier, the uh, hatcheting the chicken's head off or Betty Draper grabbing the cigarette and the shotgun and walking out in her apron? The the chicken thing is funnier. Like, there's there's a certain level of, like, girl boss funniness in the, the cigarette, like, a certain level of, like, meme readiness in, in that one, but there's, like, something unsuspecting <laughs> about about the way that that sissy space just pulls that hatchet up and like goes and walks in another direction it's just it's a it's terribly funny and i mean terribly so two movies first one um that we need to talk about though comes from the afi list and that is the silence of the lambs the 1991 classic by jonathan demi in which we see how a lady loves a serial killer in which clarice starling becomes um, deeply fascinated and deeply um, connected and and in some ways deeply grateful to Hannibal Lecter, who is a fearsome 
murderer and a very gross guy who I would not personally care to be friends with. In, in honor of that particular um, relationship between an older serial killer and a younger girl, um, I've got two movies, one Shadow of a Doubt by Alfred Hitchcock, in which a young woman discovers that her uncle is a serial killer, but this is not until after uh, she has met his arrival and anticipated his arrival to her small California town uh, with absolutely rapturous excitement, with the kind of joy, um, which is which is more than just I'm happy to see my mom's brother again, and a, a kind of joy that is echoed by the other women of the town, especially middle-aged and up, uh, once he gets there. And then the other option is, is Badlands by Terrence Malick, in which we get to watch a, a much more personal, um, but still very, very um, quiet kind of love story in which the protagonist, Holly, sort of falls for this older guy who ends up killing people. Um, and the first time it's to get her to himself, essentially. And who starts play acting, uh, performing the role of wife uh, in, in situations in which whether or not you're someone's wife is, is really kind of beyond the, beyond the point. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of humor in there, but there's also some sadness as we watch this teenager um, swept up with a serial killer who goes across the country and could strike anywhere, um, but mostly just wants to find a way to, to make some something meaningful to make himself a little bit better known and to know where he stands. So, those are the, the, the two options for you. Where, where are you headed? Let's kick off this storm of Malik with Badlands as the winner. Um, I think because what you were saying about the serial murder and that being an attempt to find meaning and a way to fashion this uh, more popular, more loved, more, uh, I don't know, just more known persona in a way, like the being James Dean thing. Um, I like that angle on Ladies Love a Serial Killer as... Right, the killing is a is a way to become something else, um, or a way to establish some meaning. So that really stuck with me, um, which is why I'm going with Badlands here. Um, Clever. Yeah, I think <laughs> this is all my, uh, my my lit crit history coming to coming to the fore here. Um, I think too, just the. Right, anything with a murder involves questions of anything involves questions of power. But the um, the relationship in Badlands seems more reminiscent of what's happening in Silence of the Lambs in terms of that disparity. And um, Clarissa and, and Hannibal aren't a thing, but as we were saying earlier, there is that sort of like charisma or connection there, um, and a lot of that is to do with the power relationship the, the the role of power in their relationship and i think that's kind of coming through in badlands in a more similar way too but yeah what you were saying about murder as like a mode of becoming um that was really what stuck with me here for um to to send badlands through so malik is one of one malik is one of one <laughs> Ah! <laughs> ah! 
Sorry. Sorry. Terrence Malik Beasley. I was about to say, like, Terrence Malik Hooker, who the Eagles are going to sign this offseason. Okay. Terrence Malik is one for one. Let's see how he holds up as we go through his first five movies in chronological order. (laughs) Good save. All right, so... So to replace the silence of the silence of the lambs, um, which is a, a, a well-regarded and, and an earned classic, I think, in the the sort of serial killer crime uh, genre. For the theme, ladies love a serial killer. Matt chose Badlands uh, by Terrence. What's his name over over uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, and his his movie Shadow of a Doubt? Is that the first Hitchcock movie we've had? I think so. I don't remember another one. If there was another one, it was kind of one of the, not lesser, but like less known ones. But I think that may be his first. I think and I know he's coming back too, so I'm, I'm not totally turned out by not choosing the Hitchcock here. <laughs> yeah, no, there's always there's always another Hitchcock movie. And of course, there are plenty on the on the list as it stands. So we will we will talk about him more. It's not like he, no one ever heard of him again. Um, if you enjoyed, if you enjoyed this episode... I, I would direct you to subtitlespodcast.com. And at subtitlespodcast.com, you can find more episodes of this podcast stretching back a little ways, uh, including the Decils, which I which I did make reference to here a second ago. Also, if you were interested in hearing uh, the longest episode in subtitles history since we started splitting these into two, uh, that's um, Matt's look at the album Ready to Die by the Notorious B.I.G. and his his two replacements there. Um, that is also present for you on, on our website. Um, you can also check out links to both of our blogs. Uh, you can check out his Spotify. You can check out my Letterboxd. Hopefully you enjoy what you hear, and we will see you next time.